Hi, Ronnie. Hi. Okay, so as we were saying before we got recording, um, we, we you know, I was reading this again with you, and because I was aware that, you know, there was someone on the other side of the pond reading, I would I'd get into the book and then I would like pull out of it and think, oh my God, he must think I'm crazy for like suggesting this book because um, uh, depending upon what your relationship to it, uh, it could seem to be quite disembodied and intellectual, like, mm -hmm. like, um, and yet for me, it has the, it, it, it has the other, the opposite effect. Like I get very, I don't know why it, it, the words are very conceptual, but it seems to draw me into, um, kind of an experience, um, like I said, I think to you in an email that it, it seems like one long, you know, like a, what, a, a 400 page Cohen to me. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I think to, to sort of set some stage, you know, for someone who might be listening to this, they must be wondering which book are we talking about? So, so maybe, maybe we can just kick off by you showing the book. Okay, great. Unbounded wholeness. Zokchen Born and the Logic of Non-Conceptual. Not exactly a title one would just randomly pick up from a store, for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think somehow we were having a dialogue and we had a synchronicity, a very eerie synchronicity around approaching Mifam and, and his beacon of certainty. And then we spoke about that and we were trying to understand how specific and bizarre and interesting that synchronicity was. And then you pulled uh, that particular book and this book, Unbounded Wholeness. And you mentioned that these two, and I quote, you said they're like the keys in a way. And I was very intrigued by that. Uh, so maybe just to understand how did this book come to you? Because these books sort of find their way to, to us, right? It's not a, like we said in the title, not, <laughs> not the most simple title to pick up. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I don't remember. Isn't that odd? Um, I think I had Mitham's Speaking of certainty first, but the, th this book, there was a whole bunch of books that came to me um, all at once when I was researching some of the philosophical foundations of um, certain experiences. And um, so I read a lot of books that didn't seem to, they seem to be playing more with language, very, I read whole series of volumes of Buddhist scholastics and um, Herbert Gunther I read. Um, but when I settled on these two books, Miffin's Beacon of Certainty and Unbounded Wholeness, um, 
I felt that they were capturing something that was completely missed by uh, the other people who were trying to reconcile some of the, let's say, analytic philosophy of Buddhist foundations or something like that. And what I would say they have in common that really resonated with me is that they both point to a certain type of what in the Miffin book is called certainty or authentication. You know, there's something authentic. There's a confidence that they're pointing to that beyond all these experience of deconstructing language and deconstructing yourself and emptiness, all this, they end up with a place of confidence and certainty. And I've always experienced um, that as, as the core, the core, um, what did I say? The key or the core of the whole, let's say awakening or enlightenment project. You get to this, in my experience, you get to this place of certainty. You know, it's not a place of refuge or safety or knowing, but it, that, so, so that really resonated with me. Um, but of course, it's very hard to language that and talk about it. And I think in this book, the journey you go on is um, trying to give you that experience. Um, but I'm not sure if it can, if you haven't had the experience already. Like, I don't, I don't know if it can point to something um, that is kind of not already there. Because I know for me, um, it was resonating. You know, maybe it's just some kind of high spiritual confirmation bias that I was looking for, but it, it was resonating with that. And so, um, yeah, so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out um, how um, maybe the traditions or how certain traditions like the Dzogchen Bong tradition um, understood that kind of experience of certainty. So we are talking about establishing certainty of a view here, the Dzogchen view. Uh, and would it be right to say that we are establishing it over an understanding of emptiness and then we are sort of, in a way, almost creating and discovering this experience and then stabilizing it on top of this underlying emptiness of everything? Would that be an appropriate understanding or would that be something different? Um, I would say it's beyond that. Um, I mean, that's in the right direction, maybe of the journey, but um, um, Maybe we should just get into the particulars. A lot of it's in the particulars. For example, there's this notion of having an experience as, um, in, you know, a lot of a lot of these experiences are made valid by inference. Let's say, and um, there's a lot of talk not in this book, but if you if you read a lot of Buddhist scholastics, that there's inference and 
uh, which is conventionally valid, let's say. And then there's what's called self-authenticating inference. So the inference authenticates itself. And in this book, they clearly say that this is, that's, that's not what they're working with. They're working with something else. You know, this book is really interesting because it's, it, it parses out all this territory and it says, but yes, but we're working with something else. You know, there's always, there's, there's a pointing, there's a carrying you to that edge uh, which which appears in other works, and then it says, "But this is something else," and it's that's what's really intriguing to me that that final move or that pointing to. Mm. Um, and so you you mentioned that this was sort of helping you almost make sense of and maybe integrate the experience that you already had. And that's why this was so important in your personal exploration. Yeah, and if I was careful, I would say that I had a lot of experiences, this, the net effect of which it built this kind of confidence. I didn't have like, um, you can have this like, wild experience of emptiness or this wild experience of non-duality or this amazing experience of having the affects you know i didn't have like oh my god i had an experience of confidence i just had a lot of these experiences the net effect was to build like a kind of confidence like that lives in here that's just confident uh, but I've never had an experience of pro profound confidence. It's that's a that's a it was that's an interesting an question. That's an outcome of the experiences and the journey, in a way. Exactly. And so when I would read other other works, and they ended up at emptiness in this kind of sense that things aren't really real, or. Uh, mm, this more fleeting kind of ephemerality of everything. It didn't match the sense of confidence that was the outcome of my experiences, let's say. Okay. Um, so before we before we read into the specific stanzas and, and just sort of co-create a way of how we're gonna approach this book, I think just one thing that would be very important to, to expand a little bit was this book is focused on discovering that sense of confidence and certainty and authentic, authenticating, self-authenticating the experience. And at the same time, you used perhaps half jokingly the statement that perhaps it was a confirmation bias for your spiritual experience. And I want to be very, I want to hold those two things and become just sort of go a little bit into that because is there something which can help someone going into this book not fall into almost using everything to just reinforce their view or manufacture a particular interpretation of some particular experiences they may have had in meditation 
which is probably a, a danger we want to avoid. So maybe we can sort of create a boundary around that. Well, I think that's part of the reason why I wanted to read it with you because a certain, from a certain perspective, you could think that there's a lot of naive realism going on here, that they think something substantial, that there's some kind of eternal substance called unbounded wholeness. You know, it's the language is poetic and Cohen-like. And so coming from a certain perspective, this what I would call the ephemerality of emptiness, you might think this is a throwback to an earlier stage where there's an attachment to some kind of eternal substance or something like that. And so, um, and I, you know, uh, I'm not sure that that's true because of the way she's languaging things, you might just be confused, but it certainly um, can appear that way. So when I met confirmation bias, I'm just acknowledging that I was actually going through books and saying, yes, I've had that experience, but there's this sense. Is anyone languaging this sense of, that I'm left with uh, without being an earlier view, you know, like some kind of substance metaphysics? And um, I found um, I found that uh, resonance in Gunther, but his language is so, you know, he's 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 very creative and imaginative with his language, and I found it in Pettit and this book, um, or at least seemed to reflect that experience. And then um, yeah, so that's what I meant by confirmation bias. There, there's truly a sense that. I went looking to see something reflect my own experience. Yes, yes, that, that's very helpful. Uh, so we, we'll jump into this, but interestingly, I just prior to our dialogue came across a quote, which somehow just feels very resonant here. It may, may not be, but I'll read it uh, just in line with the possible synchronicity. It's by Jane Hirschfield. I'm not really sure who she is perhaps a poet and she says i quote a good poem takes something you already know as a human being and raises your ability to feel that to a higher degree would that sort of point to what you're saying in terms of your experiences in this poem yeah yeah You know, it's interesting because I think that was a perfect quote because there's no allusion to a good poem, like the difference between what she wrote and let's say this version, a, a good poem expresses the universal in humans. See, there's something different in that. It's just what you already know. There's a particularity. And so there's a sense in which this book is talking about something universal, but it's not universal in the particular because not everybody has this knowing. It's very interesting to, con yeah, it's very clever the way she, the precision of that poem is very, is very good in that, in that way. Beautiful. Okay. Uh, so with that as 
an introduction and a container, hopefully, we can uh, we can jump in to perhaps begin with the preface itself. So if anyone is reading this together, you know, the, the book is called Unbounded Wholeness. It's by Anne Caroline Klein and Geshe Tenzing Bangyal Rinpoche, who's a Tibetan bond master. And in the first few statements of the preface, I've, I've made a few few underlinings and maybe I can start with, with one and then maybe if you have any specific things you have highlighted, we can go from there. So we, we can sort of keep this dynamic and see how it evolves. Mm -hmm. and, and this sort of has been very interesting. So he starts by saying, open awareness is at the heart of all Dzogchen practice. And then he specifies the context of this book saying, authenticity is exploring this nature of this authentic and reflexive awareness. Uh, so some of the language in this, in this reading is very tricky because A, they use this word authenticity in italics and then they use authentic again and again. And so this word plays quite, it makes it very hard for the, I want to say rational mind, but the side of the mind that's trying to not be diluted in the meaning of the language. So it's creating this Cohen-like tension already because you want to examine it, but because it's called authentic, you can't, you just, your mind just keeps getting confused and flipping between the two. And so there's this element of beginning itself by talking about this authentic and reflexive awareness, which if someone is reading it for the first time, sounds like, like you said, a substance perhaps, or mind only running through the universe uh, in some form, which is self-reflexive universe coming and looking at itself a little bit Advaita-like. Uh, and yeah, so, so maybe, maybe we can begin there perhaps because there are a few propositions being made right away. Uh, this wholeness is an incorruptible mind nature. And essentially the goal of this is identifying the primordial wisdom's recognition of uh, itself as unbounded wholeness, which probably doesn't make any sense to anyone listening here. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense to me either. <laughs> so you are with, with me there guys uh, and gals. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I want to sort of open this up with that because it seems to me like it's sort of making a few tricks already. What's going on there? I can see you're laughing. <laughs> yes, it's an impossible text. Okay, so um, what I wrote, I'll just share my initial thoughts. I did the same thing in terms of the way I oriented myself. <clears throat> so in the one, two, three, four, five sentences down, I think this is a clue. Um, authenticity, which I would say is, you know, the text. Sometimes they refer to the text as authenticity. And that might have been the initial name of the text. I don't know provides an intellectual structure for meditative endeavor. And I actually experienced this, like a lot of meditation 
is, um, you know, you want to calm the mind. But this is kind of like meditating and putting the mind at work. Um, yeah, uh, so, so. Like directing the entropy of the mind in some form. Exactly. Um, so it's a, it's a structure for meditative endeavor and important glimpses of where that endeavor might lead. So I think that there's a certain quality of the words, as you said, you're, you're, you know you have to let go of certain expectations about what the language will do. And if you're serious about the book, you, it, it creates a certain type of con concentration. So that's always important in meditation. Um, and I think in that sense, it is like a <clears throat> technology from the beginning. Um, and part of, I think, reading the book is letting, is turning over to the technology. Um, and so we could make an analogy, like when you first start to do Tai Chi, you turn over to the instructions. You move your arm this way, you do this, you do that. You don't really know where it's leading. And in a sense, what I think we try to do with this book is turn your mind over to the way the language is used. Um, and it kind of sculpts a new order of mind, I would say. Um, so I would say that's one of its, its um, purposes. But then, you, you know, I did the same thing as you did. I said, there's this notion of authenticity. They use it as authenticity provides. And that mean, that I think refers to the whole text, the whole project. But then they have authentic open awareness, which is something else. They have authentication, which is something else. They have a state of authenticity. So those are all like, how do all those relate to each other? Then they have, you know, authentic open awareness. They have open awareness is the knowing of unbounded wholeness. So they have unbounded wholeness, open awareness, all these things of authenticity. And um, then they have like these statements that show like they say, there's this phrase, unbounded wholeness experiencing itself as open awareness. So now you have the different terms put together in a, in a sentence structure. Um, so, um, yeah. that's kind of us, that it's an interesting. Um, I think, so I wonder, I wonder if, I wonder if, there was something you started with, which was very interesting, was how to how to read this text. So rather than just jump into reading it right now, which we can continue with, but I think it'd be good to open that up. What would be the most skillful way of reading this text? Because we have multiple possibilities. Uh, I thought maybe I could read this as a koan. So a few statements and hold them in my mind and sort of allow the 
cognitive dissonances and tensions to be held, which is a interesting exercise in what you mentioned concentration, right? So we can hold it as a koan. The second possibility was to sort of read it as a contemplation. So read a, read a, a paragraph and then reflect and then repeat. That was option two. The third one was to sort of read it as poetry when those instances come and just see what kind of images and somatic resonances unfold in the body, which is very interesting to me as a dimension because I have a sense based on what you have mentioned about the psychoactive nature of the text that that could be a very productive approach. And the fourth one is to read it as a philosophical, very logical project-oriented prose. Uh, so I think I think before we even go into that, maybe it'd be good to, since you've been playing with this for a while, you could reflect back what were the approaches you tried and which ones seemed for you to be most productive. I think all of those are in play at all at all time. Um, for me, I would say the most salient is, although she says over and over again, it's poetry. I don't, I don't read it as poetry um, unless it's a certain type of poetry that I would call a Cohen. Um, um, so I would say as a Cohen, as this meditative structure for the mind, um, I, can, I can experience it rewiring um, I can experience it, it rewiring my mind in the sense of try of exhausting the habit of putting everything in subject and object uh, structure. Um, and so as you read this and it defies the subject object structure and then sometimes it even then says oh you know it catches you no we didn't mean that because it's not an epistemology looking at an ontology um so i think uh the cohen nature this this effect on the on the mind uh as uh, a meditative practice um And it's, to me, there's a lot of uh, curiosity in the sense of a philosophical puzzle. <laughs> like I have this, like there's a puzzle in here to be solved. And um, that's, that's very, um, that's very, you know, uh, personal to me. I mean, I, I just have a, a kind of curiosity that can sustain itself if there's like yeah. like a puzzle to be solved not that i think it it can be solved rationally i'm not but um i know that the energy of of keep looking around keep looking around you mm -hmm. know like, like the proverbial girl who keeps looking in the in the poop because she knows there's a pony in there you know that's that's something that is online when I read this book. Um, yeah, thank you for reflecting that. I think I think a couple of things become very interesting around that. A is your response mentioned, all those views are salient, all those possibilities of reading are happening simultaneously, which in some form is pointing to one of the characteristics which starts to be explained from chapter two of multiplicity. 
So rather than holding just one view and going linearly through that view in the text, we are able to read the same statements, but having this multiple approach, both as prose, philosophy, a puzzle, poetry and koan all at the same time, which might sound very, which is an interesting, maybe meditative practice. I don't think we can explain it further, probably. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that that's exactly right. So when you catch yourself, you can, you can catch yourself that all these things are online simultaneously. And then you're like, wow, how can the mind work like that? Because uh, there, and it's interesting because all those streams are online simultaneously, but um, it's not like you're jumping between them. You're not like saying, oh, if I take this and then I'm gonna look at, it's not trans contextual. You're not contextualizing them. You just realize like, uh, it's, it's similar to like, if you got really good at the drums and then you realize like you've got all these two, one half, two, two third beats going on in different directions. And then all of a sudden you stop and you realize, wow, how did I pull those off? You know, like it's, it's, and for me, that is it actually, you know, an experience that transforms your mind. Um, yeah. Just like yoga transforms your body. Yes. If, if, if I sort of reflect a little bit back on that with a metaphor of tango, which is a practice I did for about a year, uh, at the start, your body is not really following the, the moves that you're being taught and you're far from being graceful. Uh, and then once you have a partner involved, then you can't just even do the basic walking all of a sudden because you need to integrate that person's experience. And then over time with practice, you know the moves and they just seem to happen effortlessly. And most of your attention is sort of in receiving and doing the communication with the partner. And then comes this stage where you need to be aware of the room and the other people dancing. And so you end up having a, a awareness that's holding the contact with your partner with the immediate floor, but it's somehow panoramic and you need to have a view of the entire room and you need to know what's happening behind you so you don't crash without looking at the people behind you. So you have this sense somatically. And somehow initially it feels like that's not possible, but then it's just somehow integrates. And which is why there's this sense of sphericality to the awareness. And so I'm very curious that you use the metaphor of puzzle because I would have thought that there was this metaphor of holding things and puzzles somehow felt to me slightly more penetrative and more dualistic uh, as something that is happening within and which sort of felt a bit more transcontextual. So do you want to sort of reflect a bit on that? Yeah. So I knew that was going to be a problematic word because I don't mean a puzzle to be solved or pieces fit together. It just has the energy of a puzzle. I mean, it has like, like, um, um, I, I borrow it because Okay, so the, the meaning for me in that word, the energy of a puzzle comes from the fact that if you train female horses and then you get a stallion, okay, which is an intact male horse, the female horses and the castrated males 
are much more likely to be willing to do what you ask them to do and to collaborate. And when you work with a stallion, his energy is much more like, how am I gonna get over on this person? Like there's always a puzzle to be solved. It's very playful and it's always, it's not like there's a puzzle and then you crack it. It's just the puzzles always, it's the energy of, let me get in here and play with what's there, you know? So the word puzzle, yeah, it's problematic because it seems like there's pieces that fit and stuff. But what I was what I was trying to share is that for me, what the the kind of curiosity and enthusiasm I have for this book is like that puzzle energy. Like yeah. I can't turn it down. It's addictive. It's kind of like playing a video game. It, which again is too much like there's something to be solved, but the, the enthusiasm feels very similar. Um, uh, you keep Hi. going back and going back and there's more to see and I don't know. Um, one of the things I wanted to say while you were talking is that if we zoom really far out, <clears throat> something in this book is also working at this extraordinary level where um, you realize that the book isn't, they're not trying to tell you anything. So it's not like an author talking to a reader. It, it kind of dissolves the duality of the reader and the writer also, because you've realized that how much of your own effort and a certain orientation is required for the meaning to come out. And so again, now you have like the dissolving of the duality. There's not like information over here being transferred over there. There's something else going on. And it's almost like the text and the book and the reading of it is a performative metaphor for what they're trying to tell you, what they're yeah. pointing out. Yes. Which is one of the reasons I thought it was quite interesting to bring that element of multiplicity in the dialogue mm -hmm. itself, because it would be interesting if, which is a very ambitious thing, considering I haven't even read the book, to sort of try to reflect those in this medium as well of dialogue and audio format. But I think one other thing which you mentioned, I think is so helpful from a reader perspective is to not approach this book from a viewpoint of taking in some information like a tool because that can make it very, very frustrating because it just seems like it's written in a very confusing manner. But on the other hand, if I sort of look at it as a almost like dance of words which is not to be examined for its efficacy, but for the performance that you mentioned and how those sort of things are going around in circles and forming conceptual structures almost in the mind of the reader. And perhaps something is trying to be conveyed through those, uh, through those, seedings almost, I don't know what the right word is. It's like when you read it, like in a poem, it creates some sort of space in your mind, body, mind, and it brings in some images or 
energetic shifts, which somehow is helping to point or train the mind in a particular way, which somehow will down the line help the sensing of this open awareness field, or maybe recognition of it rather than sensing of it. Even on the this first part of the um, preface here, this little phrase, um, and I guess it would be nice to understand the Sanskrit, um, but uh, this little phrase, this wholeness is incorruptible mind nature. Now, for me, I don't know why, but that word mind nature I don't know if this is the first place I've, I've I read that mind nature. It really resonated with me and it creates in me this ex perceptual experience of trying to not separate any experience or perception into mind or nature, right? Into the appearance and the co-dependent arising of the appearance, you know, all of this. So, so, so to me, that was, this was much more profound than the language in the other texts that keep telling you that mind and nature are not two or whatever, but they just, they just circumvent um, so I, I remember now when I first started reading this, I used to say, uh, you know, after 3000 years, okay, come on, we know that reality is not dualistic. Why don't we have a language that reflects that? Like, why are we still working in the language linguistic structure that constantly you know, if you use that language to deconstruct it, it's actually the language is is creating grooves in your mind, which are dualistic. So um, I think now I'm remembering this was a book where that was also important to me. Like, like they just pretty much avoid language construction. You know, I, I, I also complain about my friends who are like spiritual teachers and they just yell at people. You're coming from ego, you're coming from ego. I'm like every time you say that you're reifying the ego. Like, so language, I think uh, using language so that you're not performing against the message you're trying to convey is very important, right? So this notion of uh, unbounded wholeness um, doesn't really have an opposite, right? You could say, well, bounded multiplicity. It's not, it doesn't have an easy opposite or mind nature. You know, here's mind nature. Everywhere I look is mind nature. And can I, can I perceive and experience that as the case instead of having to talk myself into that, that that is the case through language that is a disservice to that uh, effort 
Um, so for me, there's like. But that's a proposition at this stage of the book, right? For someone who is reading it for the first time. Yeah, we're just on the first page of the preface. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it may like, not be. So that's the that's the that's the tension that would be interesting to explore because you sort of articulated it as you know seeing everything as my nature it's as if it's obvious but if someone's reading it they may say well i don't know if i agree with that to me it's a proposition a wholeness is an un incorruptible mind nature i'll be like sounds like this guy is saying everything is mind perhaps or everything is energy i can come up with a lot of metaphors i might i might use something which a lot of some people who have explored the mind use it well, but many other people use it in a very silly way, which is, this is all quantum field. <laughs> so how, how, how do we play with that? Well, one of the things is I could ask you, what's the opposite of mind nature? See, it's different than saying, what's the opposite, opposite of emptiness? Well, you have, a, so that's what I'm saying is like, now I could say nature mind or unnature, not mind, I don't know. But one of the things here is that they're working with ultimates that are not, all these ultimates like non-duality, what's the opposite of non-duality? Duality, it's easy, right? But there's something about the precision working with some kind of precision here with you're using words that your mind does when you when you when you catch on to the word you don't have categorized its opposite and you held this in this category here so um you know and maybe then they put i guess it's the sanskrit afterwards and maybe that lands in the native language more better um but that's part of what why yeah incorruptible mind nature um they could have said irreducible or uh non-decomposable or um something uh interesting so it's almost like the words are helping you exit the natural dualistic use of language. So it's not necessary for, I mean, one could say that spaghetti doesn't have an opposite, right? But that's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to use words which are somehow holding some form of tensions and ideas uh, which allow you to enter that space. And I think one thing which you mentioned was very interesting was how this is sort of working with and differently from our default groove of using language in the object subject perspective, which also explains why a lot of Dzogchen teachers would say just sit and don't read and has an anti-intellectual thrust, especially in the West, which is by definition, not moving towards wholeness because you're cutting out one of the most dominant expressions of your being, uh, which is also, fi I find that very bizarre from a perspective of 
Buddhist view, which includes thinking as one of the senses. And so they don't say just cut off your ears, but they say cut off your thinking, which doesn't seem holistic in any way. Next, See, uh, in, the, in the notion of unbounded wholeness, the, the, the notion of emptiness is translated as unboundedness. It's not that it's empty, it's unbounded. There's, so if you want to map those words, that's where that experience goes in the notion of unbounded wholeness. You see, that's that's a complete. So, so what happens to your mental model when you make that shift? When you say emptiness, there's a subtle mental model that it's like this pool that's empty, and there's a boundary around it. That's emptiness. There's there's. Uh, Gunther says openness, which is more like unboundedness. Hey, when you, when you, per, when in this sense, when you pursue form, you don't come to emptiness. You come to that part of the form, form which is open and unbounded. There's a difference. It's not that form. Yeah. I think there's a big difference. I don't know, maybe, I, maybe I'm just sound like one of those Buddhists that talk nonsense. I think the shift is, is categorically different and not trivial. Hmm. So one thing, that uh, arose for me when you shared that was, I always prefer using the word shunyata rather than emptiness in itself, because I find that has a lot of connotations embedded in that it's sort of existential Western philosophy more than uh, the intent. And shunya in Hindi means zero. So the word zero has emerged from that. Uh, the, the number zero has emerged from that. And though somehow people think zero is this thing, it's that you are holding in some form. It's, it's sort of this thing from which things emerge almost. So there's this element of the image that came to me was the, I don't want to use the pond perhaps, but almost like a unbounded sky, like the night sky, actually, the darkness. You don't know how big it is, but you do know that the moon is going to appear through it, right? So it's different from the pond that you were talking about in a way, right? So it's not like a pond in which fish is burning, fishes, fishes pop out of or whatever, which <laughs> I know is not your favorite metaphor for emptiness. And we don't have to go there. heard people say that. <laughs> but, but, uh, it's almost like this cosmic, almost dark matter like the night sky seems to me to be a much more interesting metaphor around this, through which things might emerge and then fade 
uh, and we might always just have a glimpse of it through a particular perspective uh, rather than from multi-perspectives. And it's also across time in a way, which I find very helpful because a lot of the stars are coming in from light years away and these uh, supernova events and so on are being seen into the past. So in a way you're able to see into time. So I find that also carries the emptiness of time with it. Would that, would that be an interesting way to look at this? Yeah, and then I would also say tag, it's kind of riffing on that. It's not building on it, but like here I am. I'm unbounded wholeness and as is everything. And um, I'm unbounded because where do I start and where do I end? I mean, you have to go all the way back to the big bang or whatever. And where do I end? You know, my, the, even if I'm scientifically reductionistic, the protons in my body will last longer, 10 times longer than the age of the universe. Like I'm, I'm passing in time, right? So I'm unbounded. Um, even in space, I'm unbounded because there's mirror neurons and there's oxygen coming from outside and I can't find myself in space either, right? So there's an unboundedness. And then there's two sense of wholeness, wholeness in the sense that I experience myself as whole, wholly a thing, but also to find myself, I have to parse the whole because of what I just said. So to me, um, I don't know where the word empty fits in that. I know where the word empty fits in uh, um, when you, when you, when you um, analyze form, you'll get to emptiness. It's a, it's a analytic method, but um, it seems much more conceptual to me than than um, than what is actually the case. The what is actually my experience almost feels like it's a flavor of unboundedness through analytical approach. It sort of turns into this sort of empty flavor of that shunyata, which it's almost as if if I think about shunyata as a or unboundedness here, if you're using them. I'm not sure if we should be using them as the same word, but if I think of this thing, we shouldn't, right? Okay, so let's no. use unboundedness, right? If I think of unboundedness, a flavor of it can emerge as form, a flavor of it can emerge as, uh, as emptiness in the classical analytical sense. Uh, but then maybe a flavor of it can emerge as more of existential philosophical emptiness of Sartre, right? Uh, so it's almost like this is sort of containing the whole and you can look at it from different perspectives of the sphere, if, if it were. And yet it's sort of whole and yeah, somehow there's that element of that sphericality to it. Yeah, I think that um, just making a case for the precision of some of these words and why I think they 
recover something um, that the, let's say, the current use of the term emptiness misses and horribly bastardizes the experience, I would say. Um, and so probably explains why on average people who practice, I find to be most existentially angsty uh, on average. Yeah, I think there's a, yeah, that's what we're saying. There's no confidence there. There's no, there's no um, <clears throat> certainty. Um, I mean, there's many reasons you could, that, you know, there's whole, all kinds of reasons why certain meditative practices and anal, analysis of, uh, well, there's conceptual analysis and that leads to emptiness that's pretty obvious. Um, um, and then there's, there's phenomenological analysis, but when you think of what the process is, is that you're working with phenomenon in the mind to get to emptiness and objects in the mind are already ephemeral. <laughs> you know, it's like, to me, it's trivial. So then you get to emptiness. If you work, you work with the concepts, you get to emptiness because concepts themselves are ephemeral. Um, uh, but that's different than working with experience. Mm -hmm. um, you don't, if you're honest and you stay with the experience, I don't think you get to emptiness. You get to unboundedness because you, you start to pursue one thing and you, there's no end to it. You don't bump against a wall and say, fine, that's the end of Bonnie. Now that's where she starts. There's a there's experience of unboundedness when you work with experience. And experience always comes whole. So I think those are words that reflect staying with experience better than working with phenomenon in the mind. You work with phenomenon in the mind, they're already ephemeral. So. Um, which somehow further reduces the possibility of any certainty. And you just keep going down that hole of ephemerality and impermanence. And over time, it can just lead people so disengaged that you need to create engaged forms of <laughs> Buddhism to, <laughs> to actually yeah. go and do things in the world. <laughs> and, and, and so, yeah, so, um, So I think in some sense of the word, uh, some sense people who have had certain trainings could find a book like this less um, accessible because you're always looking for this. You know, the other thing I like about Unbounded Holiness is it says it's not working with the two truths. It's not working with conventional. I remember the first time that pissed me off when I had all these experiences and I was reading all these Buddhist or Western Buddhist scripts and texts and, and they, would, they, would, they would deconstruct the duality of subject and object and they would deconstruct the duality of everything. And at the end you had conventional truths and, and conventionally valid truths, relative truths and absolute truths. And I'm like, it's like a total bait and switch game because all the way up, 
they say there's no duality and then the whole thing rests on this ultimate duality that's unresolved and um yeah it used to piss me off i want to just pick up on something you mentioned there of opening up into experience and it eventually leading into unboundedness somehow remind me of this zokchen saying trust your experience refine your view rob rob used to say this a lot rob berbea uh trust your experience and keep refining the view and obviously i had not connected it to this but the way you phrased it somehow to me seems like pointing to the unboundedness because instead of deconstructing it down to emptiness we are opening up the multifaceted nature of experience and exploring it and exploring it and rather than doubting it there is an element of bringing in an element of trust into it which perhaps matures into certainty at some point when we keep opening to this finite experience into the unbounded wholeness uh does does that does that resonate in some form yeah it's beautiful and if you really get good at it you eventually don't have the duality this is a subtle duality i've set up of ephemeral phenomenon in experience because when you really practice being with the experience you can experience the subtle phenomenon become ex an experience you're having <laughs> so there's not even this this um what is you in this context so that sounds very dualistic um yeah so um you're not thinking you're experiencing your experience has the quality that we call thinking you know there's like um i'm uh, first i don't want to i don't want to try to torture the language too much the first point i'm making is that i made a subtle duality about sticking with experience versus objects in your mind and then at a certain point um so i wanted to just address that that that's a subtle duality itself um you know a lot of a lot of um teachers will say it's either experience or a thought and so there's like another one of these tensions and i think that um if you trust your experience your review your view can is refined into that thoughts are just another type of experience they are experiential in nature when they're not reduced to a certain category or something anyways i was just address i just wanted to address that subtle I was making a distinction they're distinct types of experiences they're not too dual they they're not opposite categories which we don't even have to set up in the starting place we could just say thoughts are part of the whole sense field and the whole 
exactly term of experience is happening in this sort of your body interfacing with the universe in time and space which we already defined not defined but almost discover experientially if you just close your eyes you can't find the boundaries of your body so there is just clear emptiness of space and time which itself is pointing to the unboundedness so we don't even have to set up that duality in the first place right exactly and so you could say let's say i have this classic experience of emptiness in the classic way uh if i stay with the experience i have the experience and then and and then i never still never hit a wall i never hit a wall boom emptiness that's rock bottom it immediately changes into the concept and then the concept form comes and i'm having the experience of the you know it's the same thing you never you never hit rock bottom when you get to emptiness it's it's got a hole in the wall there's no wall it's unbounded and so um it's the same as any other experience unless you conceptualize it and you get into this this kind of crazy recursive notion of of emptiness being like a pond and the appearances jump in and out of it like like fish i mean that's a complete reification so yes which is actually quite bounded as well which is why i always found the metaphor of ocean a lot more accessible and sky as a lot more accessible than a pond but but without beating on that bush let's no 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 this great cuz did you ever ask yourself where does the ocean end right and so then you think it's a very funny it's a very funny question when you think of it out in space just hanging in space there that's you know yeah it's beautiful uh so i'm i'm mindful that you know we've been on yeah. it and the time is empty and it is flying by i'm sure the listeners may not have that emptiness accessible at this point uh before we close i just wanted to sort of bring in the mythic side of of this because i have personally found the accessibility of the teachings from tibetan side quite hard because i find i have to accept the cosmological elements and the myths of discovery of these things through very bizarre stories but in this particular book in the preface on page number 7 he speaks she she speaks about how this is also embedded into the text in the way of the poetic nature of things so it's sort of somehow it's sort of coming in and infusing some images perhaps or just setting up some form of boundary or meaning or approach and i want to understand from your perspective how do you work with that is it okay for people to just ignore that if they don't agree with it or, or or could it be something to entertain as a form of imaginative fiction or how would we how would we bring that into the reading of this text i have to i'm on, i'm not settled with that question yet and so uh what i like about the book is that you know she treats the mythic 
in a historical kind of narrative. Uh, so I'm of two minds. And um, one is that the mythic is mythic. Um, but I suspect there's something much more literal in what they're saying than we think. Because the difficulty is um, <clears throat> the mythic mind is trying to, the mythic mind itself is not trying to make a myth about reality. It's trying to language reality and it takes a myth, what we call a mythic form. It's not like the mythic, original mythic mind had the myth and then the literal understanding. It didn't have the literal. So there's something about in the myth, to me, that must have a seed that's much more literal than we think. Um, so, um, and I'm just going to give you an example that's a bad example because it's similar to this, but it's not a direct analogy. So um, the indigenous um, people in the, in the North America, in the plains, they have this, this myth that says uh, the, the um, like, the prairie dogs call the rain, let's say, okay? And that sounds silly, right? It sounds like some kind of mythic assignment to prairie dog as an archetype or something. But it turns out it's true that the, that the underground holes that the prairie dogs make release coolness and it's part of the hydrological cycle of the prairies. So that's what I mean. I think that there's some seed <clears throat> in original myth, not the kind of myths we make up today and we know they're mythical, but in original myths, I think there's some kind of seed of literal experience that when they use the myth, it just represented literal experience. But because we have, we have both a literal mind and a mythic aptitude, this is a, a kind of a effort or, or it's a there's the, the, the information is stretched in a kind of a weird way. Yes. And to that two, two things sort of emerge for me. The first being with the view of wholeness, prairie dogs and even the horses will all have a participatory role in the bringing of rain. So in one way, one could say it's quite arbitrary. Mm -hmm. uh, but then from a scientific <clears throat> worldview and complexity science, we might say, no, actually, prairie dogs have a more active role. Like the otters might have a more active role in maintaining the water waves. So that's the first element. And the second one, which to me is somehow touches the decontextual nature of a lot of these practices is if these are these myths are pointing to some form of 
actual literal elements present in that part of the world, like in this case, the prairies and that land has its own system. And so some ideas may emerge from that. I feel like if you just pluck them from Tibet and put them in Western country, the myths don't translate, which, which is a challenge, which, which explains why all the people who seem to be able to embody this world, you have to change their names or have to go into that completely embody that cosmology fully and that mm -hmm. worldview. But at the same time, I think our intention and our exploration is to sort of be able to access this unbounded wholeness without having to bring that in. So I, I, I'm, I'm wondering with that context, how do we, how do we hold this, this element of this reading? Maybe we don't have an answer to this, but. Yeah, I think that the, the, the language around unbounded wholeness and authenticity, I think those are, it's a kind of literacy. Once you get later in the book and they talk about the origins and the, and the termas, that these things were buried for you, you know, then you'll start to get the real mythological history that is not like the beginning of the book, which is more of a kind of literacy. I wouldn't say literal, we said they were like koans and stuff. Um, but um, there's certainly a, a a, a complete shift in orientation when you get to the second half of the book, which deals with the mythic uh, historicity of the of the work itself and the origins and the myth around the people who supposedly wrote it and, and stuff like that. Then it gets into this other other realm. Okay, perfect. I guess we can hold that. Uh, exploration when that part of the book is reached, if it is reached, because on this space we are on page five on the prefix. So. <laughs> this might be a, a long, long project. Well, thank you, Bonnie, for your time and for connecting on this. And uh, yeah, look forward to continuing these in our next dialogue.